Let's take it to the edge. Let's get deflected. Let's talk about the night perspective. Let's get sharp. Let's get a little real. Alright guys, welcome to the Knife Perspective, episode 64. Today we have a very special guest, Nick, and he is the Edge Professional on Instagram. Hey guys, how are you? We we have a uh, solo show today, or a solo Kyle show today, because Dan is actually getting surgery on his shoulder today, and uh, we don't need to hear his drug-induced uh, stuff, so we're going to be good, so... Bringing you some some live in person recording here in the garage, and uh, the boys have a fully loaded snack box, uh, or at least it was as of fifteen minutes ago, and they have a juice box. So you might get to hear a little bit of uh, me yelling at the boys from time to time in this podcast. So buckle up. <laughs> but Nick Nick is a uh, sharpening, I would dare say, expert. Expert, I like that. Thanks. <laughs> and, it. and he is the Edge Professional on Instagram. And you any on any other social media now? Or? Uh, but Facebook, Instagram. Uh, definitely not on TikTok yet. I don't no. think I can do that. No, I really think I'm too old for TikTok. I'm on. I'm on the TikTok. You're on the TikTok? No, yeah. I yeah. do it a little bit. A little me. dancing, little singing, little little tool play. No, really, like no dancing. <laughs> <laughs> but. Uh, yeah, so I uh, want to thank our sponsors, uh, Jance Knife Supply, and you can use discount code KPGRIP to save 10% on all handle material orders there. And they do a great job with uh, helping support the podcast and keeping it coming to you. you. We also have Atlas Materials. They're a great handle supplier for all sorts of Macardas and Juma and, and pretty much everything else you can think of. Dan and Natasha do a great job, and we appreciate their support a lot. And we also have Phoenix Abrasives, and you can use discount code KP10 for 10% off your order for all your abrasive needs. I've been going through a lot of the purple ceramic belts uh, in this latest batch of CPM 154 knives that I'm doing. I'm currently working on 14 of them and one magnet cut knife because I hate myself. And I'm going to be hand sanding that one for uh, Papa Rhino on instagram he's a chef and i'm sure he's gonna love it so uh definitely check out phoenix abrasives and get yourself some some great belts there you can also get all of your other miscellaneous knife making supplies at old town cutlery and they're a great supporter of the podcast you can also buy all your knives also there and you can use discount code kp10 to get 10 percent off your order at old town cutlery Lee and Melissa do a great job keeping all sorts of great knives in stock, lots of traditional folders and everything in between. And they even have their Do South brand, so they can they make some semi-custom stuff and uh, some really cool handle materials. You can find Cage Daily Knives and Dogwood Custom Knives at Old Town Cutlery, as I mentioned there. And you can also find them at Knife Center. Uh, they have just one model of my pocket bushcrafter still in stock at Knife Center, 
And I believe they still have a couple of knives of Dan's. Last I saw, there was a Kephart in uh, CPM 154 that looked pretty spiffy with a walnut handle. You can also find Dan's knives at the Cook Station and Blade HQ also. They have some of his fish and fowl knives. And you can find a lot of Cage Daily knives at Northside Cutlery. Kevin and his girlfriend, Daniela, do a great job over there. So if you're in the Chicagoland area and need some knife sharpening near Wrigley Field, definitely go check them out. I don't have any shout-outs or anything, but uh, Nick, you want to uh, tell everybody where you grew up? <laughs> I like to call it the crossroads of how the hell did I get here and why the hell am I here. But basically, it's northern Ontario, uh, four and a half hours north of Toronto. Like I said, middle of why am I here and how did I get here? So it wasn't much, a lot of hunting, a lot of bears, a lot of, a lot of nothing. They said like 70% of Canada lives below Toronto. Yeah, I agree with that. <laughs> there is. There's, no, there's nobody where I'm from. And as it just gets northern than that, it just gets more thinned out, less people, less things, less places, less people, more moose. It gets a little weird. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the so when you grew up, you spent a lot of time outside, I assume? Constantly, all the time. I mean, grew up as a, what they call a bush kid, hanging out in the woods all the time, bushcrafting. Actually, I sold you that uh, knife that my grandfather made. Yeah. And that's how we used to just mess around with things. You know, you don't have it, you'd make it. Yeah. Um, so played a lot around stuff like that as a kid. But, I mean, it wasn't really a craft. It wasn't really like a, a calling to make knives. It was just, you know, you're bored. The dead of winter, there's nothing to do. You're not going to go outside. So, what do you do? <laughs> I don't know. You make a knife or something stupid, right? Yeah. I remember Rich Marchand, he's a knife maker of Wilder Tools up in Canada. And one time he posted on Blade Forums, he goes, Well, I was going to work out in the shop today, but it was a little hard to fire up the forge at negative 60. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like, yeah, it's no uh, uh, I would imagine that would not be extremely fun, but at least it would help get the shop a little bit warmer. <laughs> So that, or was, is that knife that you made with your grandfather one of the, the first ones you can remember having? Or First knife I remember having. First knife I remember being allowed to actually own because my parents were totally, I mean, and that was the 90s too, right? The 90s, with all the parental warnings, you weren't allowed to play with like guns or cap guns or BB guns or anything like that, at least in my house. So hey. it was the first sharp object that I was allowed to own. <laughs> Sorry, my boy is trying to ride his bicycle around the garage now. No, we're not riding our bicycle. Yeah. What? No, watch your movie with your brother. Sorry. Sorry, guys. Hopefully we can edit that out, or I will edit that out. Um, we'll, we'll do our best. We'll do our best. <laughs> or maybe you guys will just get it live and raw. Um, so, um, how'd you meet your wife? Is one of the questions we like to ask on the we show. We like to ask, really? So, uh, yeah. So, on our show, uh, I met my wife on eHarmony. And my, really? Yeah. I don't know that. And uh, Dan met his wife, and he picked her up at her grandmother's wake. So, <laughs> Dude, what a hero. Damn, dude. That's pulling well above your weight right there. Damn. Yeah. That's... yeah. He was pretty confident there. Uh, so, I met my wife, actually, in uh, Paris, France. Uh, we were at Notre Dame Church. I was there to do a butchery class that I was going to go take. But I was hanging out with a chef friend that had a restaurant there. So I was hanging out with him for a few days. I decided to, like, you know, I guess I got to go see Notre Dame. Mm-hmm. So I went to go to the church. And there was this, I spoke French for like a week straight. And I was just so tired of constantly speaking French that there was this an American girl that was speaking English. I was like, I'll just have a conversation with her just so I can get the shit taste of French out of my mouth. 
And I asked her, I was like, hey, is your name Molly? She goes, no, my name's Allie. Well, nice to meet you, Allie. My name's Nick. You want to go for a glass of wine or something? So ever since then, we've been uh, long distance for two years, and then we finally got married in 2017. Nice. That's, uh, Sorry, 2017, 2015. It's a pretty bold move. Two to years off. Oops. Just go grab one. <laughs> or uh, go, go up to a random. It all works out, I guess. Yeah, well, it did. It was easier to get uh, me into the United States than it was to get her into Canada. So Canada immigration is based off needs. So good job. You know, you're from not a war-torn country, so it was just easier. You know, she would have been at the back of the line in Canada. So with the United States, paid for a lawyer, did the 90-day fiancé thing, and it was just a lot easier. cost a lot more money, but it was a lot easier. Yeah. Very cool. So you started off as, as a chef. That was... Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I feel like everyone has this story these days. But, yeah, started off as a chef. I didn't know what I wanted to do in life. I went to university for, like, a month. And I just hated it. It wasn't really what I wanted to do in life. So my parents basically told me that, like, if you're not going to go to university, then you have to get a job. My uncle owned a, a restaurant called The Keg. It's like a chain steakhouse shop. Okay. And uh, it was like, all right, well, I'll get a job there. I'll become a, a dishwasher. Hated it. Became a busboy. <laughs> also hated it. And then I was like, well, I guess I'll start cooking because they make a little bit more money and I could not have to wash dishes all day. So started cooking and I kind of liked it but again it's a chain restaurant so it wasn't that fun uh and then eventually I got into a nicer restaurant a nicer restaurant it wasn't all just chef mike it wasn't all just chef mike man. I wish <laughs> I wish being around a lot more of the food people I, I learned a lot more about chef mike and that's the that's what they call the microwave for for people that aren't in the food industry so like when they come out to your when you're you complain that your food isn't warm or something like that They'll like they'll usually have the chef come out and say, "Oh, we'll have Chef Mike take care of that for you and bring it right back out to you." And that that means they're going to throw it in the microwave for sixty seconds or something like that. So, uh, I I've had that happen to me a couple times, and I I thought it was always weird that it was the the same. Well, it must be a lot of mics in the the food service industry, but uh, they were referring to the microwave. <laughs> yeah, when you're stepping into a restaurant, you don't hear any sounds or any pots or pans banging or anything like that you start to wonder like who the hell's cooking my food right now it's a microwave <laughs> it's a microwave yeah i couldn't believe how many places it's like that like you would think you like i thought i was getting a lot of like made made to order food and it was really just them just ripping the top off of oh man don't go to an olive garden i'll tell you that right <laughs> now everything gets shot out of a bag so yeah but i get it you know it's it's mcdonald's and i did a lot of uh, in my restaurant work did a lot of food production fps kind of stuff like that it's it's one of those questions where if you need to make scrambled eggs and you have 60 restaurants over whatever 10 states how do they all serve the exact same eggs you have to do it in like a food process kind kind of way where you stick it into a bag you stick it in a microwave hit 60 seconds or whatever else it is you just it's, it's a way of standardizing your food which is probably the hardest challenge in cooking and that's kind of when where i ended my career uh, I went to do an apprentice at the House of Commons, which was the, the White House of Canada. Okay. I went to go cook for, actually, I cooked for Obama. That was cool. Bush. Nice. Uh, I, got, I almost got fired because I laughed at the Emperor of Japan. That almost got me in a bunch of trouble. I <laughs> <laughs> didn't get to do the, uh, did Prince Charles. He came once, so that was pretty cool. But uh, cooked for a bunch of kings and queens and stuff like that, and that was fun. It was a great apprenticeship. You did everything there, so everything was cooked scratch for everything from the beginning up, so... It was fun. Not many places you get to look, you know, and 
look at everything, see everything being made, soups, stocks, sauces. Nothing was out of a bag. Everything was made. Yeah. Uh, and then from there, they started doing food production, and that's where I got into that, where it was, you know, Nick, you need to make 600 pounds of scrambled eggs in 10 different restaurants. How do you do that? Hmm. So that's kind of where I ended up. So back to the Canadian White House. The Canadian White House, yeah, I like that. <laughs> what was, the, uh, what was the, the most interesting request you got? <clears throat> interesting did, request. Did, did, they, oh. did people like request fields, or did you just kind of like whatever you guys felt like fixing? Or I assume they wanted to give you some sort of guidance on what people like to eat. Or Yeah, well, totally. So uh, there was three restaurants uh, that were within that. One was the All Made at the West Block, which was that was just catering. Uh, sandwiches for the staff, crew, and all that stuff like that. I worked at Center Block, which was all the cooking for the restaurants themselves, where all the members of parliament, all the dignitaries, that's where the, the restaurant was. So I would, I was the apprentice, so I just got kicked around all day long. But it was great, because you got to do a lot of things that you otherwise wouldn't normally be able to do. The weirdest request I ever got was uh, actually cooking a whole meal out of seal. Um... I mean, you you remember was it like 2007? Everybody was all upset. Like the ant, the, like the actual seal. Yeah, like seal, nice. like baby seals. Those <laughs> cute little guys. So it was one of those things where everybody was all upset about. I hear you know, polar bears like them. Love them. Love them to death. <laughs> and uh, it was one of those things where uh, this MP Doucette was all upset that you know they're taking away native rights. Everybody was all upset at, at people clubbing baby seals, which is I get that. Yeah. But they didn't want to take away native Aboriginal rights. So part of this is that she asked the chef that I was working for if he could do a seal dinner. And my God, it was the worst thing I've ever done in my entire life. We got seals shipped in all the way from the Northwest Territories. They showed up. But it was one of those things, like, what the hell do you do with a seal? Yeah, how do you break down a seal? Like, I'm sorry, this wasn't in my cookbook. <laughs> when I went to school, how the hell do you cook a seal? Yeah. So we did pate, we did a roast, we did all these things. It was terrible. And I have this really great picture of the Prime Minister of Canada now, which is Justin Trudeau. He was uh, an MP back then, and he was assistant um, for one of the other M MPs. And I have a great picture of him trying to take a bite of, like, seal canapé. And you just see the look on his face, like, oh, this is terrible. I have to swallow this. There's a camera <laughs> in my face. Yeah. Um, it was probably the worst meal I've ever had in my entire life. I've never yeah. seen somebody try so hard to make such terrible food. It, mm. Seal is impossible to eat. Really? Oh, it's disgusting. Oh. It huh. tastes gross. It smells fishy. It doesn't taste like chicken. It tastes like a seal. It, it's weird. So it's not, it's not like a red... I would assume it's kind of like a red meat. Yeah, oh yeah, like red meat. It's, a, it's a very irony, very like licking a wrench. So oh, yeah. it, it's it's that very gamey, very fishy, a lot of fat, a lot of, you know, not a lot of gristle within the meat texture itself. So it's like, bleh. it's gross. Okay. It's so bad. So bad. That was one of the worst meals I've ever had in my entire life, hands down. And, I, and, and that I was a part of it, too. But that was the weirdest, weirdest, weirdest request. And then just other weird things where you go to, like, parties. And, I mean, I'm sure it's, like, anywhere else, any other government, you know, weird parties, late at night, special requests. Can I get a little extra, you know, downwindy 14? Can I get some extra booze and some extra food and stuff like that? But it was cool. Yeah. Great place to learn how to cook. Great place to, to grow up for five years when you're 20. So Nice. Very cool. So then, so you said then you start doing the, the mass food production thing. Yeah, mass food production. I got into that, um, making food for the masses. And then that scored me a few other jobs where I was, ended up working. The last chef job I have, I was working for a TV chef. And we were running uh, four restaurants. He was a TV chef named David Adji. Didn't work out great. Uh, ended up in a fist fight with him. 
Oh. One day. Great. It was amazing. It's the only time. It's, it's the best way to quit a job is, is to assault your boss. I will say that. And Hopefully you didn't get any illegal after that. I mean, if he listens to this, maybe. I don't know. But I think the 10 years are up now, so I don't know what he's going to say about that. But uh, David Adji, if you're listening, bud, it's been real. <laughs> <laughs> I hope I never see you again. Um, but then, yeah, so I was working with him for um, as a TV chef. You know, doing little meals and running restaurants, just doing restaurant consultancy and stuff like that. Um, but like I said, it just didn't work out with David. And uh, from there, I just left and became a butcher, which is how I ended up in France where I met my wife. Nice. So then, uh, so how did, how did they contact you to do the butchery thing? Like, I, I can't imagine. Or... So what happened was, is that basically my uh, TV chef was... He was taking money and keeping it in a bank account. He kept telling me, like, Nick, oh, there's money in a bank account. There's money in a bank account. Don't worry about it. The money's all there. And he kept showing me these bank statements where all this money was around. But what finally happened is, you know, I asked for some of the money because I couldn't live off of what I had at the time. Uh, and he kind of stuck me in a restaurant to become the, the general manager there for a while. But it wasn't for a lot of money, and there's nothing that I could survive on. I was going to try to do him a favor, so... When I didn't accept the job that uh, I needed to, and I needed to borrow some of the money that he said was still there, that's when I found out that there was no money and he was taking it all along. So Ooh, that's not good. <laughs> no, no, I mean, it was like $15,000. It, it was a lot of money. It was a lot of money. And I remember asking him for it, like, hey, well, if you can't do this, I just need some of the money. I need to pay rent, I need to pay these bills. And it just didn't exist. So I got upset. Um, he was mad at me that I didn't take the job. And then I got a nasty phone call from him one day and he said, you know, basically you're taking the job and if you don't, you're going to be in trouble. I didn't take the job because why would you work for pennies? And so he came into the restaurant one day and he said, you just call me up. You're dead. I'm going to make, you know, as a TV chef does. And so he calls me up. He's like, you're dead. As soon as I see you, you're dead. So when he came into the restaurant, I was working and he kind of like cocked his fist. Like he was going to, you know, swing at me. And I just dropped him. But he went down, <laughs> and, and I just remember standing over him being like, you know, blah, 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 everything comes back around, and I just walked out. And from there on out, I just didn't want to work in restaurants anymore. It just wasn't worth it. You get a sour taste in your mouth like that. It just wasn't for me anymore. So then I found yeah. a job as an apprentice to become a butcher, okay. and that was great. I was a butcher for three years, got my Canadian paperwork as a legal certified butcher, and then that's how I ended up at France meeting my wife, is that I was there to take a butchery course. Okay, so your the company that you worked for for the butchery stuff sent you to. I sent myself there. Or, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, I was working for a company called VG Meats, uh, Van Groningen Meats in Hamilton, Ontario. What up, Stony Creek? Uh, <laughs> nobody knows who that is. <laughs> but Kyle, if you're listening, what's up, bud? Um, they were great, great company. Loved it. Loved being a butcher. It was a great job. But again. Learning charcuterie was the next big thing, especially in the restaurant world. A lot of chefs nowadays are always trying to find a way out. And I think that's why we see a lot of chefs in the knife industry now is that, you know, a lot of people get into the knife, sorry, get into the restaurant industry and you want to become a chef and you start to realize the trials and tribulations and how restaurants at the end of the day don't really make a lot of money. So then you have to find a way out. And I tell a lot of new cooks these days, like it's, it's, it's okay to be a cook and it's okay to be a chef. That's great. But maybe also work on an exit plan. You know, mm -hmm. work on knives on the side or work on charcuterie or if you knit sweaters, yeah. maybe continue to knit sweaters because one day if you get into a problem or you meet the wrong person in the restaurant industry, you know, you still yeah. have to have other skills. Management changes too. 
I, I liked a lot of my jobs and then had a couple of managers that like definitely changed the whole, the whole group dynamic dynamic. Yeah. So I know um, what are you going to do? Yeah. It's, it's when you have some of that stuff that like seems like so kind of wistfully and everybody's working, like it's amazing how quickly that can kind of change. So um, yeah, having, having some stuff. And I, one of the things that always seemed like the hardest for, for me, I never actually worked in restaurants and stuff too, but lots of times they're wanting you to work dinner and like you're, you're working from three until 10, 11 o'clock and then cleaning after and uh, just, yeah, losing every, every night to stuff. And then, your most profitable days are Friday, Saturday, Sunday. So yeah. uh, you lose all your weekends and stuff like that. So not getting to see a lot of your friends and stuff would be pretty challenging, I would think. Yeah. Friends, family. I mean, Christmas, New Year's, I always used to work those things. You know, it, I, I mean, I will say that part of that decision for me to become a butcher and try to find some way out of the restaurant in, in industry was, you know, I want to have a wife. I want to have kids. I want a family. I saw a lot of chefs that, you know, had a family and had kids. And it was, it, it was a struggle because you're always at your job, you know, and it, yeah. it's, it's, it's hard to be there as a chef parent. Yeah. Um, In the restaurant industry, you're, you're working when everybody else is off at the restaurant. Yeah, exactly. And it, <laughs> so. It's just, unless you have, you know, your, your partner themselves work in the restaurant industry, it's really hard. Um, and that's the kind of decision that I made for myself personally that, you know, maybe Maybe I don't want this life. Maybe it was great when I started, but maybe I need to do something else. And it's a process too. I went to go become a butcher and being a butcher that, that, that I mean, I, I was told when I got into the butchering industry that there's going to be a huge lack of butchers. The pay rate for butchers are going to go through the roof because everybody needs meat. You know, everyone eats meat, but there's no one to cut meat. So there's going to be this, you know, $75 an hour butcher jobs and stuff like that. So I thought, Oh, um, I'll, I'll go be a butcher. This will be a, yeah. Great idea. It'll take me two years. I got my chef papers. I'll get my butcher papers. Uh, and the idea being that, you know, if you can if you can grow a carrot, pick the carrot, clean the carrot, make it into a carrot salad, you're making the most amount of money that you could possibly make in a restaurant. You know, and part of that idea was steaks. And if you can buy half of a cow and turn it all into steaks, you can make a bunch more money. So I was just trying to be pragmatic about the whole thing. Now, this is my way out. I can become a butcher. I can get more skills. If I want to go back in the restaurant industry, I can, but I have more skills to do it and I can make more money at it. Yeah. Um, and that was the idea. But then that kind of blew up too. I will say that the whole charcuterie next wave kind of thing didn't really happen. But then I moved to the United States and then it really, really changed. Butchery in Canada is a lot different than being a butcher in the United States. Hmm. Huge difference. Just with the regulations or... Like, yeah, la- there's a lot less regulations here, a lot less. Um, in Canada, we have, I mean, there's trades in Canada, but you have red seal trades, meaning that it is a government-issued test put on by the government that certifies that you know what you're talking about. So there's red seal chef, red seal, you know, carpenter, red seal plumber. You get your tickets. And part of that is an apprenticeship that you have to do anywhere from two to five years. And then on top of it, they also have testing too as well, mandatory. So every three months you get tested. So it is, it's, it's an apprenticeship, but it's actually established and regulated by the government. So it, it's an institution. It's yeah. great. And that helps a lot in terms of pay. That helps in terms of, of, of keeping proficiency within the, the trade itself. Sure. You know, if you're a Red Seal certified plumber, 
then whoever is hiring you knows that, okay, he knows all these things. You're not, you're not just hiring some Yahoo. You had to do a five-year apprenticeship. You had to do five tests and you had to do a, a final test to get your red seal paperwork. So it's a way to prove your skills, but also as a way to keep the industry at a certain level too as well. You can't yeah. just, you know, wake up, roll out of bed one day and say, you know, I'm going to go be a plumber. Mm-hmm. It can't happen like that. Yeah. One of the only things I can kind of think of that would be similar to the United States is like the CDO, the commercial driver's licenses, where, yeah, you actually, yeah, everything's run through the, the different state or state and Department of Transportation. So, well, I wish they had that in the United States. It keeps, it also helps the, when you're the employee too as well. And because you have these certifications, they, they have to pay you more. And it's a way of proving yourself. And I think it would help a lot of people in the United States too. If you could be like a, Chef apprentice to chef, you know, master chef and certified chef. They have a few chef programs here, but it would just help the trades out a lot. Interesting. So then, uh, how'd you get into knife sharpening? <laughs> so funny. I, I mean, I showed you that crappy little knife I made with my grandfather, but uh, it was always something I did. I mean, but, so how I got into butchery is because I was hunting. Uh, in Canada, but I was such a terrible shot. All my buddies would be like, dude, just go to the cabin, drink, stop your terrible shot, Nick. Even if there is a moose and we see a moose, you're going to screw it up. Mm. So take some beer, go hang out the cabin. When we kill something, we'll bring it back. You cut it up. And that's how I started being a game butcher. And I was a cook apprentice at the time and I was learning. So I was like, whatever, I'll cut up. I don't care. I'll sit at the cabin, get drunk all day. And I worked like four or five hours out of this whole weekend. Great. Perfect for me. And then I cooked the meat, made a dinner. It was awesome. So that's how I kind of like, well, maybe I'll get into being a butcher. And it was great. And it was a great time. I learned some skills. Um, game butchery is not fun. It's yeah. super dirty and moving a moose and a drag that's been, you know, a deer that's been dragged through the woods and all that kind of stuff like that is not fun. But it definitely teaches you a lot of skills. Yeah. Part of that, you need to sharpen your knives and maintain your equipment, which is something that came along with the job, you know. Uh, doing butchery tools, how to sharpen meat grinding plates and everything. It just came with the territory. Being a chef, when I was learning at the, the, the White House of Canada, uh, I before I was even allowed to step into a kitchen, I had to learn how to mop the floors. I had to learn how to sweep, which sounds stupid. Like, how do you, everybody knows how to mop, but no, you don't know how to mop. Nobody yeah. knows how to mop. Mop, it, mop efficiently and don't don't <laughs> yeah. go over the same spot with the same dirty thing. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we had the a similar thing, not nearly as sanitary, or I guess somewhat nearly as sanitary for wrestling. We had to mop the mats because everybody's sweating and stuff all over them, and we'd oh, have yeah. to disinfect them every it was every other day. Staff is real. Uh, yeah, yeah. Monday, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, they all got mopped. Yeah, there were only like a couple of us that actually. The coach was like, "These are the these are the people that are." <laughs> These are the mobbers. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's, and it's true though. It, it, it sounds so stupid, but it's one of those things that yeah, like most people, don't, I never learned how to mop properly until I went to go work in a restaurant. Mm. Don't mop yourself in a corner. Let's get it. You know, yeah. make it do it efficiently. So yeah. it, don't step where you've been mopping. <laughs> and so part of that was sharpening knives. I had to sharpen all of the chef's knives. I had to mop the floors, sweep the floors, and it was just what it is. So it became one of those apprentice things where you just had to learn how to sharpen knives. Okay. And then from being a chef and a butcher, being a game butcher, it was just a necessity of the job. You know, you do it a million times, eventually you figure out what's a good way of doing it, what's a bad way of doing it. Uh, and then I ended up, when I moved to the United States, I had to restart from scratch. 
I was a dishwasher, and then I was a cook, I was all this stuff. All my paperwork, all my certifications didn't apply when I moved to the United States. So I had to start being a dishwasher, to a cook, to a chef, all those things again. Part of that, I ended up at this uh, place called West Loop Salumi. Okay. That was on Randolph and Green uh, in the West Loop. Uh, they were doing charcuterie, so I was the production manager there. Um, and that's what I, I got my degrees and certifications was charcuterie and mass production of, of food. Uh, it was my dream job, and I loved it. It was great. It was a small salumi, like salumieri shop. Uh, we so made, you'd actually like make the salami and hang out meat and stuff. Cool. That was my dream job. Loved it. And then uh, they closed. They just randomly closed one day. That was it. I just showed up. Doors were closed. So I was like, oh, crap. That's <laughs> not good. I mean, there was some t- telltale signs of what was happening. But anyways, just showed up one day. The whole place was closed. So I walked around the corner, and that's how I ended up at Northwestern Cutlery. Wow. So I didn't really have any skills. It wasn't like I was a knife sharpener, but I sharpened all the, the meat equipment at the production plant. I sharpened everybody's knives at the plant. So it was just skills that I had. So I showed Marty Pitlick. He's the owner of Northwestern Cutlery. Uh, I walked in, met him, and just said, hey, you know, this is... I need, need a job, <laughs> need some help. And then I started part-time. And that's what I did for, I mean, I was there for six years at Northwestern yeah. Gallery. Yeah, I remember you showed me the picture when you were, you had your boy on your, in the carrier on your back while you're Oh, dude, my wife stuff. was so mad at that. <laughs> so mad at that. <laughs> what is that? Well, I mean, I'm holding a knife and there's a child strapped to my chest. So I don't, yeah. I think most people would object to that. Oh, Excuse me. Knife people wouldn't see any problem with that whatsoever. Yeah. Anybody not within the knife industry would look at it and say, oh my God, that's child abuse. But he learned it and he loves knives now. So, yeah. It all worked out. Yeah. You said he's four and a half? Four. Four. Yeah. Four in January. Yeah. Nick was uh, commenting about how much my, my six year old, six and a half year old boys are eating. So I told him, just wait. It's coming, man. Oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> it's real. It's real, real. Yeah. So then you did. So you did all the stuff at Northwestern Cutlery, and you started doing some knife classes. And I took your knife class. Yeah. Woo. Yeah, it was fun. Uh, got to use a plethora of stones you've got. Thank with. you. Yeah. Uh, it was just one of those things where I sharpened for forever. I mean, because I've been doing it the entire time. But it wasn't. It was just a fun thing. It was something I do on the side, like sharpening Japanese knives, thinning Japanese knives. That's all stuff I did on the side. I did. I did that stuff for fun. Then I just made a job out of it. So, you know, buying stones, trying new new things out, working with a bench grinder and stuff. It uh, it was it, it was fun. A lot of it was just a lot of the application of things I've already done. I mean, I used to sharpen and play with knives with my grandfather on a bench grinder, but now I get to use those skills professionally. You know, a lot of what we did at Northwestern Cutlery was the industrial uh, butcher industry. So, man, we used to do like five hundred packing knives in a day. It was like boxes and boxes and boxes. But again stuff that i've done before yeah so yeah you got to do some pretty neat things there do you want to talk about the calvary saver saver a little bit oh or? yeah well then i got into restoration stuff i i like restoration i don't know i i like saving things i like straight razors i like japanese knives and all this stuff like that because it's it's a challenge in the sense that you have a limited amount of steel you have a limited amount of things to play with something's already damaged so how can you take something that you know if a knife has a, a quarter inch chipping it there's only so much steel that's left you can't yeah just hack it all off and just say well there you go there's your knife bag there's a little bit more of a science and you're trying to play with it straight razor is the same thing i mean if there's a huge chip in a straight razor you have a limited amount of steel so you have to make a game plan you know make a few tests see what you're going to do make a game plan and then go for it 
I like that. And restoration is the same thing too, where you're trying to make something not necessarily look like it's brand new because that would just, you yeah. know, it would look weird, especially like an yeah. old handle on a knife on a sword that looks brand new. looks stupid. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't, it doesn't, it's not copacetic. So you're trying to antique it in a way that it looks good for what it is. And I think that was a really kind of cool science towards the restoration for Project of Things. So uh, Civil War Saber, um, that was a lot of fun. Gentleman came in. It was from early within the Civil War itself. It was in the Battle of Kansas. I have all the information on it. Yeah. But it was in the Battle of Kansas. It was from a major Pierce who carried it into the battle. And then he ended up dying, and his family got a sword. And then, long story short, the gentleman that had it now, his family bought it off of the grieving family. Mm. And then they passed it along their family through generations. So it, w- wow. it was weird because it wasn't their family's history, but yeah. they had it. It was great. Yeah. It was in perfect condition. The only problem is that he took it to uh, a gentleman to have it sharpened. <laughs> he put it on a bench grinder. I've heard so many of those stories. Like you see, like they take it to like a pedestal grinder and you're just. Uh, yeah let's have a little more tact in this <laughs> so it was one of those things where it just had to sandpaper time reshape it take all the deep gouges out smooth them all off all them all off but then again a lot of it's not antiquing is not going and doing too much don't take off too much steel leave some imperfection so it's kind of mm-hmm. cool fun i like restoration yeah i got a, a samurai sword that i'm doing now so that's my next projects that i'm learning is how to sharpen and polish samurai swords yeah and you did like uh you went to there was like a samurai sword convention that you were telling me about. yeah april 24th if you guys want to come uh it's at the the sheraton up uh by the airport o'hare airport okay the nihon token binsu something i thought you said you weren't gonna say any japanese Oh, I'm getting canceled if I speak <laughs> Japanese. I'm totally getting canceled. I'm sorry. I don't speak Japanese, by the way. I think everybody needs to know that. I don't speak Japanese. I just pretend to. Uh, so there's... But if you come on the 24th, it's great. It's really cool. I, you know, being a knife sharpener is great, and I loved it, and fixing and restoring and all that kind of stuff is great, too. Straight razors. Learning all that, dynamics. Great. You had a pretty fun guy to work with, Poppy. Shout out to him. Oh, shout out to Poppy, yeah. <laughs> we'll tell a lot of stories about Poppy. But I don't know, it was one of those things where, like, you know, I think every Toyota mechanic thinks about being a Ferrari mechanic, you know? And it was just one of those things where, like, all oh, this is great, Japanese knives, all this stuff is great. But, you know, samurai swords are cool, man. Mm-hmm. <laughs> They're badass. It's a samurai sword, man. Yeah. This kills somebody. <laughs> this, is, this is awesome. So it was just one of those things where it was a natural progression into And then you... To get into sword polishing, you need to know about ge- geometry on steroids. You need to know about metallurgy on steroids. You need to know about stones and how they react to steel on steroids. So it, it's the ultimate a- application of a lot of knife sharpening ideas. Like, I'm, you know, you know a lot about stones, but then, you know, take a sword from the 15th century and then try to put it on a stone. Completely different ballgame. Yeah. So it's cool. It's interesting. Yeah. And you were all those you were talking about how there's like a really hard edge and really soft behind so you like do those little finger stones so you can like polish just like little tiny spots right oh yeah i got to talk to you about finger stones so <laughs> <laughs> so there's a whole progression in japanese stones uh kongudo again don't speak japanese and then it's bintu kase uh, uh chunagara komanagara and then after that you go into finger stones okay. so 
what you're trying to do, because, I mean, again, Samurai Sword isn't just a flat face, curved, convex edge. Um, more newer Japanese swords are more of a flat face on their cutting edges. Again, they're not really being used in war applications. It, for the longest time, Japanese swords were having a hard time because they would break. They were so hard that they would just shatter. Uh, and throughout the series and generations, especially when you start studying samurai swords, it's not just a static, they made one samurai sword for 600 years. You can see how they progressively started to make changes, yeah. Um, a change to the curvature, a change to this, a change, and it all had a reason. It all had a pragmatic purpose. And they do all the apprenticeship stuff too. So, like all that information is getting shared between all the different mastersmiths stuff. So. Yeah, in schools, there was definitely yeah. schools. And then from there, you know, somebody can look at the work and say, "Well, that's a school of yada 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 yada." So, part of, of that whole geometry thing, why it's so important, is because they were hitting guys with armor on. If you're going to hit somebody with armor, then having a flat, you know, facet to your edge is just going to cause it to chip a lot. So, and then, you know, hamons and why they do ashi. Ashi are, are when they put the clay on, they do lines all the way to the edge. Uh, and they take the clay all the way down to the absolute cutting edge, the hasaki. The reason why that is, is because if there were to be a chip, there's at least some soft points within that hard cutting edge itself. So if it, it makes a relief within the blade. But okay. if it does chip... It's not going to be, you know, half-inch chip. It's going to be, you know, an eighth of an inch chip. Okay. So huh. everything's very pragmatic. And the more that you learn about it, you're like, wow, these guys are really interesting. And it's, they've, thought, they've thought of everything. Yeah. And it's not like they were scientists. They weren't rocket scientists. These were just average-day yeah. people, yeah. rice farmers. Yeah, they kept trying different things. Like, lots of times people who give, like, engineers a really bad rap, but uh, lots of engineers were, like, super hands-on especially way back the the day and uh actually knew how to make a lot of the stuff they were designing instead of people that just became like really good at math so yeah there's there's lots of lots of good ideas the whole like from the the guy working on the assembly line all the way up so it doesn't really matter where you are you can always have good ideas to to try out and especially if you have other people listening to you they could try some stuff out so. especially when the good idea is not dying <laughs> yeah yeah, the good idea is not dying. Uh, <laughs> oh, it's cool. It's it's just it's a it's a really interesting kind of way to to go about learning history and culture and reasoning for things. Uh, like, what was the stupidest thing? So there's a makugi pin, and makugi pin holds the entire sam- it holds the handle to the actual samurai sword itself. One pin, and it's so stupid. And, and everybody was saying, "I'll just use a chopstick." But I started talking to more people and talking to more guys, and they go, "No, no, no." You need a specific type of bamboo. The center beam of everybody's old, uh, when they used to build houses in Japan, the largest, the biggest piece of bamboo that they could find was their center beam in the middle of their house. Okay. But they would have fires in their house. They would always have smoke that would billow through this bamboo. And then they learn and they realize that by smoking this bamboo, they would textually harden it. So you can't just use a chopstick or use a piece of bamboo to shove it in a makugi pin. It's going to snap. You have to use a piece of wood that's been smoked for like 50 years and then whittle it. It's just, it's so ridiculous. It's so ridiculous. But who would think about that? Who would spend the time and effort to be like, yeah. you know what? I, I tested a thousand makugi pins, but the one that worked was the center beam of my house. How you even think to cut into that? Yeah, I, I, I don't know. So. so it's just, it's ridiculous. The whole thing is just absolutely wild. Yeah. Nice. So yeah, that guy or uh that guy you went to doing a lot of the natural stone 
research stuff, right? The all the samurai stuff. Yeah, some guys. Uh, Josiah Boomershine, thank you, buddy, for your help. Uh, Gaming Cortex been really great uh, in helping me kind of learn these things. A lot of people, especially if you guys want to come on April the twenty fourth, it's difficult to begin because again, this is a lot of secrets and knife makers are very open. Samurai sword guys are not really closed off about it. And I get it. It takes a lot of years to learn how to do this stuff. It's, it's, it's an apprentice. It's passed on knowledge. So they don't just want to pass it on to somebody that's going to use it and abuse it and do something stupid. Again, you're also playing with history. So they don't just want you to be so encouraged that you take a, a thousand year old piece of history and just scratch the hell out of it on a stone. Yeah. I get that part of it too. But once you start to learn and you start to show up and talk to people and they see that you're coming around, they start to open up to you. But it's a lot. It's a lot of history. It's a lot of knowledge. It's a lot of languages that you don't speak. Yeah. Um, one of the stupidest thing that I've learned is that it was uh, there's Red Rust and Black Rust. Black Rust, the tetrapheric or whatever, like it's, it's treated rust. The Red Rust is, is uh, ferric oxide, so it's actually actively eating away at the steel. Yeah. So part of that is that you have to, on the samurai sword, you want to keep, especially on the, the, the handle part of it, the nakago, is that you want to keep the black rust, but you want to remove the red rust. So the only thing that can do that is ivory. Real ivory. Nice. <laughs> well, then I was like, well, where the hell am I going to get ivory? Like, it, it, it's illegal in the United States. Nobody openly sells yeah. it. You can't just say, like, hey, can I get some ivory? Yeah. So I had to email every uh, piano tuner in Chicago to find somebody that had ivory piano keys. Yeah. Just so that you can take all this rust off. So you just you kind of sharpen that like a chisel, or yeah, just like a little comb. I just took a, it. Was it was just it was like a really thin key. And I just cut it in half and you just scrape over the blade. Wow, that's crazy. Stupid. <laughs> yeah. Uh. Yeah. It was always amazed me that they used ivory for piano keys. I mean, it makes sense that it's like super durable, but. Uh, yeah. Seems you want to like kill Dumbo for it? Yeah, don't really want to kill elephants for it. <laughs> uh, so then, uh, so yeah, you, you kind of progress through that, learning more of that, then to your, you're to your position that you are now, right? Yeah, that uh, evolved into me now being the sales manager for a company called RH Prada. So we make, manufacture uh, Arkansas sharpening stones, so natural Arkansas sharpening stones. And you got to try right. them today. Yeah, I got to try a few of them today. So we did the the hard white, you said, and then the black. Hard black. Hard black, and then the surgical black, and yeah. then the, the translucent. One. Yeah. The uh, mythological translucent. Yeah. Yeah, that one was one that the machinist that I worked with, like, would never let me touch. <laughs> that was their, like, prize stone. Whenever you would take a, a vice and stuff off, like a CNC mill, you want that surface to be, like, super clean. So... Uh, usually about every three to six months, they would take that vice off the machine and really clean inside all the ways and stuff from all the coolant so that it would uh, keep it from rusting. Yeah, before they put it back on, they would they would stone down the whole precision surface of that table to make sure it was super flat to hold the, the vice. And that's what they're good at. I mean, Arkansas stones, I mean, I'm sure everyone's learned on Arkansas stone. I see a lot of people that have old Arkansas from like 30, 40 years ago. I've got a little K-bar one. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody's got one. If you look in your grandfather's drawer, he's probably got one. Guaranteed. Yeah, I was trying to sharpen a Swiss Army knife with it when I was real little. <laughs> yeah, man. Every, everybody starts, it's funny how everybody starts in, in the same place. Um, but yeah, so we're selling those now. Arkansas stones are great. I mean, well, you tried them. We're, what did you think? 
yeah, they do a really nice job for polishing. Yeah. Uh, some of the steel or some of the high carbon steel that I was doing, it was working a lot better for it. Uh, some of the higher alloys, like 154 and uh, S35VN, I was used do a, using one of Dan's uh, MidTech knives. Uh, and then I would, I put my MagnaCut knife on there a little bit, and it just, uh, so those vanadium carbides and stuff, the polishes it seemed to, but didn't seem to really cut extremely good on those higher ones. But the, yeah, the, the like 154 CM, CPM 154, and kind of below for the, like, wear resistance seemed to work really well it's not that you couldn't get the like sharpening and stuff on those higher end steels it just took a lot more rubbing oh yeah so. okay well i would there's always good and bad especially with natural stones. all natural stones are essentially the exact same thing i mean it's it's clay and particulate silicon dioxide that i mean even the japanese natural stone, you know they're all shale based so they're all what they call silicious based stones so particulate that floated you know, into the ocean, fell to the bottom, and then slowly got metamorphosized in a rock. So they're all essentially the exact same thing. Silicate dioxide or some, either it's a shale product or it's going to be a chert product. The chert product itself is, is similar to a shale, but it goes for uh, in a transformation uh, under pressure and heat, and it turns it into a microcrystalline kind of stone. So the advantage of Arkansas are that, you know, they have a little bit more cutting power than other you know, natural sharpening stones or a shale-based sharpening stone because the, it crystallized in micro forms, micro nodules yeah. in a sharp little triangular uh, micro crystals, if you will. So they're a little different. But again, yeah. like you said, they're great for polishing. Yeah. Speed is not their game. Yeah, it seemed to really give a nice polished edge on the, especially on the, I have a, had a knife that I made out of Alabama, Damascus, and it like cut really fast on that and gave it a really nice polish. Uh, like some of those super high alloyed steels are uh, just a lot harder to work with. <laughs> They're so nice. Yeah, my boys are fun. He just he just has to go to the bathroom. So <laughs> he's going to the bathroom, bud. Do you need to go? Yeah. You can watch, you keep watching the movie. Uh, but yeah, they do a really good job for for the that final polish. Um, on the the CPM 154, Black Surgical uh, was kind of like in the 3,000-ish yeah, range. Yeah, Black Surgical 6 to 8,000 within that okay. range. Okay, so, and that, that seemed to work really well to give it a, like a, a toothy edge when I was uh, sharpening with it. Yeah, and well, I mean, Noveculite basically means razor stone. So razor blades to give that final polished edge. Harder steels, obviously, they have a harder time with because they don't have the same cutting power in terms of abrasive. But I do 80 to 90% all, all my work on whetstones. Yeah. Can you just watch the bridge? <laughs> <laughs> all right. Yeah, the... Or where were we? <laughs> so the you said the the Nobeculite doesn't have the same cutting power. Yeah, it doesn't have the same cutting because again, it, it's 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 almost like a vitrified diamond stone in the sense where you can't you part of its cutting power and ability. The softer the stone, the more cutting power you have. I mean, it's pretty universal in all sharpening stones, whether they be natural or, or synthetic. The softer the stone, 
the more abrasive mud that you can make, the more abrasive mud you can make, the more cutting power you have. So there's really three different main types of stones that are in, in the synthetic format. The natural format itself, there's no binder. It, it's a rock, so it's, partic it's particulate that's been squashed together. There's no binding yeah. to it. So the softer the stone, the more abrasive cutting power you have. The harder the stones, the less yeah. abrasive cutting power you have. As that stone wears down, it creates more cutting surfaces. So yeah. the harder the stone, the less it wears, and then those surfaces don't uh, don't cut anymore. So like yeah. on a lot of my uh, ceramic grinding belts, there's still like a ton of grit that looks like uh, it hasn't even been touched. But you have to like break through those other those other pieces that it's kind of riding on top of to get to those new cutting areas in the stone. Yeah. So, so it's one of those things where you have to, obviously, especially in natural stones, if you're talking about natural stones, you have to pick the right stone for the right steel for the right premise as what you're doing. But Arkansas stones are great for polishing. They're definitely polishing stones, which is not to say that they make for good sharpening stones. So they do, but polishing and sharpening are two different things. Sharpening itself is, you know, its ability to effectively remove steel, polishing and cut the carbides. Yeah. So this is part of the reason why with like some of these higher vanadium steels that are really becoming popular, uh, those diamond and uh, CBN uh, stones are becoming like one of the only things that can really cut the yeah. vanadium carbides. Necessary. Yeah. Yeah. Otherwise, you're just, you're, I mean, it'll still do it, but it'll just be really efficient or you'll start drawing pulling out carbides and stuff like that. Like you need, you need something very hard for that. So that's the catch 22 of it. And watching you sharpen some of the stuff, his Instagram account's really good. He was always showing a whole bunch of stuff when he was at Northwestern Cutlery, but uh, he was actually having some of the like carbide pullout that you would see like on some of the, the Japanese kitchen knives. Yeah. Uh, it was like crazy to see some of that. Like it, it was always VG10. <laughs> it was always VG10. Uh, Troop and Ice had, had a really great, suggestion with that is that VG, VG10 is a, a like an ingot steel but he was saying that the problem with the ingot steel is that they they, they cool down slowly and because of that they have a really bigger grain structure to the actual steel itself so I don't know but it was all, all, always VG10 you know Max rarely it was ATS 34 rarely but it was VG10 mostly hmm. but again I just would take it to a diamond stone and that would be that that, that would be the end of it but yeah, give it a little bit less shallow of a yeah. <laughs> And just tell the customer I did my best. You know, because it was, they, they were huge chips, but it, it just, carbide pullout is real, man. It's real and it happens. Yeah, crazy. So, yeah, so you, we got the kind of four main stones. Is that, that's the, the four main ones that RH Prada sells? Yeah, soft wall of five. Soft, hard. So soft is three six hundred within that range in terms of grit. So those are white, uh, white soft, just soft, or, and then soft. there's hard white. Okay. Um, hard white is a thousand grit in within that range. Hard black, which is technically not nubeculite, it's a shale product, meaning that, I mean, it does have nubeculite in it. There's some debate if it is nubeculite or not, but it's more volcanically carbonate based material, so it's a shale based product. Uh, hard black is three six thousand. Excuse me. And then you have um, black surgical, which is around six to eight thousand, and then you have uh, translucent, which is ten thousand and above. Yeah, and part of the reason you said it was translucent was because of the it's more like pure noveculite. Right? Yeah, so noveculite. How do I say this? So it 
how noveculite formed was that it was two things. One, there was uh, silicon dioxide that either came from volcanoes, a lot of it came from the bacteria that died off and slowly their bodies would fall to the bottom of the ground, break down, um, and, you know, silicon dioxide was basically sand, silt all over the ground. Uh, that eventually formed into quartzite over a period of time. Basically, South America crashed into North America, and Arkansas is right along the ridge where all three of the Eurasia plate, North American plate, and the uh, Gondwana South American plate all crashed together. And slips and folds and everything like that, that's how we get Arkansas stones. It's just the fault line that, that formed within that. And when those two plates crashed into each other, it pushed all that hard rock material upwards, and that's why we can mine Arkansas today. Nice. I so wonder if that's part of, or because they, like uh, Sheffield, England, is another spot where they said part of the reason Sheffield became so big in its day was like because of the stone that was there. They yeah. they had like really good uh, grinding stones. Uh, I mean, Jasper. I mean, there's Jaspers out in Canada, which are not so. They're not my favorite, but. Um, Old Eschers, Thurgans, uh, Turkish stones, Turkish noveculite. There's noveculite in Japan. There's noveculite in Texas. The southern parts, where that whole fold was, it's called the Benton and Broken Arrow Plate. Okay. It goes from uh, the Washita Mountains all the way into Oklahoma, Oklahoma into the north part of Texas. So apparently the, the southern part of that whole fault area is where the purest forms of, of noveculite is. Purest in the sense that it's pure quartzite and no other added materials. So the darker the material gets, the more adjunct there is. In there. So if you see like a black surgical, it's almost transparent, but there's a little bit of carbonate mixed into it, a little bit of volcanic ash, and that's why it's black. When you see translucence, those are pure, pure quartzite. So in the sense that they have a very high grit value, there's not a lot of impurities into it. It's a very stable stone, but again, very hard to find. Uh, and they're usually found in the most southern part of that whole Benton and Broken Arrow plate. Okay. They're trying to find those stones to be like, uh, the bigger the stone, obviously, the more cost because it's hard oh, to yeah. find. Dude, so. We waste so much, so many. Now I understand why, especially when you buy these big, fat Japanese polishing stones, everyone's like, well, how is this stone like $3,000? It doesn't make sense. But it's like, once you go in these mines and you've seen them and you see these mines and how they have to cut it and blow up the rock, in a certain way, there's impurities within the rock, naturally. So you have to cut around the impurities to get it in with certain shape. Like, I mean, I got you're like 8 to 10%. Yeah. You know? I mean, I'm going to say this in kilos, but if you have like 10 kilos of material, you're only going to get one kilo of rock out of it that's actually usable material. So that's yeah. where it gets really expensive. That's where it gets really hard. So you see these big, fat stones. Think of how much material had to be cut off just to get that one perfect specimen. So for our uh, freedom unit people, that'd be like 22 freedom! pounds. <laughs> yeah, 22 pounds. 22 pounds of material to make two pounds worth of stone. So. Exactly. So it, it's just natural stones are, I mean, a different animal. Do I think that natural stones are automatically better than synthetic ones? No, God, no. I think synthetic stones have gotten to the point. I mean, even your stones that you had got from Triple B, what up? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, congratulations on that. Uh, he said he's been working on that uh, Manix 2 and 15B. That was like a three-year project. So, yeah. And it released today? Was it today? Well, they, that. They've been, or Knife Center is supposed to drop uh, a load of them today, but I managed to, managed to score one. So. Oh, they're going to be gone by the time we get off. <laughs> yeah. 
uh, so bad. But uh, we can pause if you want to take a look. Nah, my, my <laughs> wife would kill me anyways. I can't buy any more knives. But uh, no, do, so do, do I think that synthetic stones are better, or naturals are better than synthetics? No, absolutely not. Synthetics are now are so advanced. At, they're just so advanced. They're so amazing. I like to say that well, naturals are automatically better. I think is a little bit not true. <laughs> um, there's so many great stones, so many great binders, so many great ways of doing it. I mean, are is there natural stones that are amazing? Yes, but more for polishing. Polishing and sharpening are two different things. Polishing is to make something completely smooth and flat. Sharpening is to remove steel to make it into a, as acute of a point that you can put put it into. So you have to remove material. Apex, the steel is what a lot of people say. Get it to into the apex yeah exactly so that is more on geometry and steel and, and all these other things and your ability to remove steel polishing is you're not trying to remove a lot of steel you're trying to make it as even as possible so that it's two different facets and categories so to say that natural stones are, are better universally i think is not necessarily true they're great they give you a little bit of toothy edginess when, when you sharpen you can choose what kind of hardness you want for the steel that you're going to use it on. Yes, absolutely. But synthetics, synthetic abrasives are amazing these days, man. Yeah, been a lot of research going on in there, uh, especially with all of, uh, being able to do a lot more of the like lab-grown diamonds and stuff. Of yeah. making a lot of diamond tooling and obviously diamond stones uh, a lot. They should find diamond stones, man. That's where it's at. Well, I tried yours, man. They were amazing. Yeah, it's uh, it's crazy how like. It just cuts through a lot of the super wear resistant steels. So, but yeah, you want to, uh, where do you want to go now? What, uh, oh, you want to talk? <laughs> uh, dun, 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 dun. So, uh, what's next for Nick? What's next for oh. Nick? Well, I'm working this job. Uh, Ari Capreda, check us out, com. If you guys want to talk about Arkansas Stones, you know, hit me up at uh, the Edge Professional. Um, basically just sword polishing, selling stones, you know, I think it's a really, for me right now, especially my career, I really wish that I could polish knives and, and sharpen samurai swords all day long, but my God, my body was killing me. I mean, even from when I just stopped the job, my hands were swelling up. I still can't wear my, my wedding ring. I think that anybody that gets into knife sharpening knows that your back hurts, your arms hurt, your hands start to hurt and they swell up. Like. It's great, and I love doing it, but to do it 12 hours a day, five to six days a week, is just brutal on your body. So now I get to do it for fun. So I make more money. I get to, to, to choose the projects that I get to do. I still enjoy doing it, but I want to focus more on polishing and making something look as good as it possibly can. I think that's where my mind is really taking me these days. And make some knives and make some straight razors and stuff like that. Like Make a few things and stuff, but... I really want to work on this uh, Japanese sword polishing thing. Yeah. So imagine, imagine trying to find some of those swords is like almost like a needle in a haystack type thing, or are those fairly easy to to find ones to for people to have you polish? They're not as expensive as what you think they are. Everyone thinks, oh, it's a samurai sword. It's worth like ten grand. It's not. You can go to these <laughs> like the well. If you guys come on again, eight. April 24th, if you guys come, uh, you'll see like a bunch of used old swords for like 350, 600 bucks. Like they're not expensive. They're not amazing swords yeah. made by, you know, Master Yoshihiro Masamoto that, uh, you know, 
chop 10 heads off or something like that with one it's nothing like that but you can find nice historical pieces that you know are, are worthy of saving but um especially when you start working with japanese there's levels and there's grades given to samurai swords that they are an article worthy it's it's given out by two basic kind of um i don't want to say grading companies because they're not but there's the one is nt neon token anyways nthbk they're the main one and they basically say that your piece when you send it in for grading they either say that this is worthy of, of saving <laughs> that's one grade <laughs> worthy of saving yeah or it's worthy of restoration and maintenance or it's this is a classic historical piece very few pieces make these either three grades i mean obviously being a historical piece of japanese history is very very rare <laughs> Yeah, that you're just like you found it in your grandfather's basement, but most things are, are worthy of restoration. Some things, like the one that I have, is what they call a suriyaji. A suriyaji is just um, in the Edo period from Muromachi into the Shinto period. There was a time of peace, so everybody would use long swords to knock people off horses. They were called tachis. A samurai sword was like your last ditch effort. Your katana i mean you yeah. would, you would never use it that was just only if things if everything went wrong you had that by your yeah. side so they used tachis and stuff like that but during the when they were switching from you know muromachi into the shinto period it was the great Edo time of peace so they would just cut down swords so the sword that i have is not valuable it was cut down it was cut down by a lot and you can see the tool marks and you can see where they they moved it all up and squashed it so, you know, if it was a time of peace, why do you need a long sword to kill nobody? So you would just shorten it up so it was light, so you could carry on you a lot easier. Yeah. So it's not or like a utility thing. So there's no name on it. There's no name. There's no, you know, this guy did it. It's already been messed with before. It's got some tools. It's got some hit marks on it and stuff. So it's not worth anything. So maybe like 300 bucks, if you're lucky, you yeah. would get for it. So it's just cool to practice historical pieces. Practice your geometry. Because that's ultimately what polishing is, is making sure that that face is completely flat and level. And that's how you polish something. It has to be even. You can't just run a piece of steel on a stone and be like, oh, yeah, it's polished. It's not. It has to be even. That's what you're trying to go for in polishing. So it's just yeah. a new study. Patience. Yeah, you said <laughs> like uh, the sword polishing stones are like really thick, like, three three to four inches i think yeah. you said and then lots of times instead of like for kitchen knives and stuff we always obsess of keeping the stone flat like you said the sword polishing stones actually had like a curve like a big curve yeah and it allows you uh they call sorry for your it's the curvature within your blade itself okay is that if your blade is curved a knife is generally flat a sword is curved so you can apply more pressure if your stone is also curved. I would, you hold a sword within your hands, right? And you have to move the sword, the steel, over the stone. But that means that your body has to move. If your stone is flat, the sword is curved, you have to put the curvature in your hands. So it's a lot of weight resting on your hands. And I didn't realize this until I did, like, two Chinese fake ones. And it, I realized that if you just were to curve your stone... You can move your arms straight up and down, and curvature would be made through the stone instead of manipulating your hands. Hmm. Makes it way easier. That's yeah. why you see these guys with curved stones. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, well, oh my god! Uh, you so have a, a higher contact 
force yeah. area, so yeah. it gives it more more pressure to, to push down and cut. In a very specific area that's most likely curved. Yeah. Now it all makes sense. <laughs> I was like, oh my god, why is this so hard? Why does this suck? Oh, that's why. Just curve your stone. So it's interesting. So how do you curve your stone? Just uh, start uh, using like a diamond plate? Wear it down. Yeah, wear it down over time and period. Usually they say you should wear your stone in on uh, on bad knives and bad swords and stuff like that. Boys. Shh. <laughs> oh, I don't think I'll be able to get that one out. Uh, <laughs> but uh, that, that would take a long time to... Yeah, you just practice on terrible stones and terrible this. And every sword's a little different, so you have to kind of manipulate it just a little bit. But you, like you said, you got your new NL8 stone. You take a little off here and then practice, take a little off there and kind of work with it. But yeah. It's just a whole new thing to think about. Nines are, are one thing, swords are one thing, polishing is one thing, straight razors are something else. So it's interesting yeah. to learn all the different facets of it. But again, like I said, if you're a Toyota mechanic, every day you dream about what it is to be a Ferrari mechanic. Being a Ferrari mechanic to me was always polishing samurai swords. I don't know why. I just thought that was the coolest damn thing that you could possibly do. Yeah. That's very cool. Uh, yeah, like, as you're growing up and stuff, having those big swords are kind of like what every little boy dreams about to begin with. It's a freaking sword, man. <laughs> this is cool. Yeah. This killed somebody. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I always like to think. <laughs> Which probably, most of the things, probably never did. Probably never did, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sat in somebody's uh closet for a long time well and that's what's so funny too especially with the highest concentration of japanese swords outside of the united states uh, outside of japan is definitely the united states world war ii general Patton, when he told japan had to surrender all their swords where do you think they went to america all the gis took them sent them back so yeah. you'll find these pr amazing pieces of japanese historic like history and art ar artistry and they're in some guy's basement downstairs uh, yeah. My buddy who collects them found one at a like a gun shop, and the, he bought it for like thirty bucks. And the guy chromed it. Couldn't figure out what the hell was wrong with it, but they chromed it just because it was rusting. It was it was like a rusting piece of steel. So you know, in the nineteen fifties, nineteen sixties, what do you do with everything? You chrome it. So they just yeah. chrome the shit out of it, <laughs> and it turned out to be this historical piece from the eleventh century. So you can find them everywhere. You can find these samurai swords everywhere, everywhere, everywhere. So then they, they like polished the chrome off, or yeah, he got it uh, dipped off. He had the yeah. chrome removed, and then he polished it all up. And now he has an 11th century piece of historical, you know, art that's worth thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars. So wow, it's interesting. It's like yeah. treasure hunting. That's crazy. Kind of like hitting the lottery on that one, I imagine. Oh yeah, yeah, but you can find them anywhere, especially in, in the United States. Go check your uh, parents' basement because you never know. Yeah, pawn shops. Pawn shops. Like that, yeah. One of the one of the recent podcasts I did with Neil Warren, he was talking about working at a pawn shop and some oh, of the stuff that weird we, thing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like he had a, he had a guy come in. He had a guy come in and he wanted to pawn his like uh, I forget what animal, but they were they were traps like spring traps. And he said there was still like fur and stuff in. Them. <laughs> Neil was yeah. Neil was like uh, I I can't do that. Yeah, like, I don't think so. That's, <laughs> that's good. <laughs> Uh, That's funny. Like, I don't even know how much to pawn these for. He's like, I definitely got to have them back for for first season. He's like, uh, yeah, I think we're not a right fit for you. But 
Anything else you want to let people know about stones or stones? What stones? Natural stones. You said something about finger. Or oh, finger, finger stones. So yeah. So what happens is at, at the end of uh, all your stones, all your progressions, you go through uh, Chunagara, Komanagara, and then you're in what they call Uchigamori. So why the polishing is such a big deal, and if I can explain it all concisely, is that if you think of a clear, this is funny because I was reading this the other day, and the guy said. Think of a clear blue sky and think of a cloud in front of that sky. That's what you're trying to do. So you're really creating magic in the sense that you have hard steel and soft steel. The hard steel, the cutting edge, is harder than the softer gigane that's around it. How can you polish them to look like that without scratching the soft steel? Anything that would polish the hard steel is going to scratch the soft steel. Anything that's going to polish the soft steel isn't going to do anything to the hard steel itself. So what you're doing is basically magic. Okay. And, and doing that Uchigamori is the, is the one stone that they found that can do that. So you're polishing the entire knife. You, it'll look like it's all the same. You, you won't see much definition until you get up to about Koma, like Chunagara, Komanagara. You won't see any definition between the two steels itself. It's only when you bring in the Uchigamori stone that for whatever reason, it's the right particulate, it's the right softness, it's the right all mechanics of things that it will polish the hard steel, which has mostly been polished already, but it's just enough of that in-between, that baby bear effect, that it'll bring out all of that, that polished goodness that you're looking for, where the soft steel is foggy and the hard steel is perfectly brilliantly polished. Mm. That's why this is hard, and that's why this is magic. <laughs> and afterwards... And it takes done, lots of years to match. Yeah, and then after when you're done, uh, you go through Uchigamori, uh, Naru Takido, Again, sorry, I don't speak Japanese. So sorry, everyone. <laughs> I butchered all that. But after you're done, you make little stones that are about, I mean, a quarter of an inch by a quarter of an inch. Uh, and you cut them all up and you break them so that they're, they're flexible stones. Yeah, and the, then you go over the whole... The best place to cut them all up is your kitchen table. Kitchen table, yep. Oh, God. I know my wife hates <laughs> shout out, Shout out to your wife. Thank you for putting up with me, my love. <laughs> she, uh, she, put a, she put a picture up on the stories. It was like... When you when you when you live with a knife maker and uh, or knife polisher, you're you're over there like with her uh, light. You're like cutting stuff. It was yeah. like I could totally feel the, the so daggers. <laughs> She's so mad. Like, hey, what are you doing? Um, and but then you make these finger stones, uh, and then in just that you have to do it in a certain direction, um, and then you're just going over all your work. And the reason why that is is because the weight of the sword and the weight of your hands. Even though you did use it on the Uchikomori stone, just the weight of your hands and the sword resting on it itself will cause a deformation within the steel itself. So by reversing it and, and having the sword uh, stationary on you and then moving the stone over it, you're applying a lot less pressure and it'll help bring out a little bit more of the brilliance of the polish that you're trying to do. So to finish it all, you do another round of Uchikomori, which is your magic sauce. I mean, it's only about 5,000 grit. They're not super high polished grit. Oh. Um, they're just the right type of grit. And I imagine the, the light pressure kind of gives you like a burnishing effect, maybe? Yeah, a little bit. And then uh, and then you finish with your Narutaki. And then you go over it just a little bit more. But again, you have to choose your stones based upon... Every sword will be different, which is why you need to have a large variety of these stones because, you know, since each one is different, every stone is different, every Uchikomori is different, you have to kind of test them off a little bit that you find the right Uchigamori that's not too hard and not too soft to give you the effect of what you're trying to do. So you have to have 
a collection of these stones and you need to select the right stone for that specific sword because they'll all be a little bit different so yeah yeah boku bucks lots of money money. yeah (laughs) um but yeah just uh if i can tell anybody one thing it's that you know polishing sharpening are two different things polishing is especially trying to make something flat so don't focus more on sharpening you'll see polishers do three scratches and then they'll look at what they did and then they'll go back to it because the idea is that you're not just trying to wear material off you're trying to wear material off so that it's perfectly symmetrical with each other and all the material that's around it that's how you make a brilliant polish okay reflect all the light yeah you gotta work in highs and lows you're working from high to low especially at night you can take material off but you can't put material on so if you see a dark spot that's a low spot if you see a lighter gray spot that's a high spot Work on the high spots to bring them down to the low spots, and then you'll have a more perfect edge. Mm. And for when people that get started in Japanese sword polishing, or Japanese knife polishing for even that matter too, is that they'll they'll just waste steel. They'll just waste and waste and waste and waste and waste steel trying to get to that point where everything's even, and they never get to that true point of ultimate perfectionism. Because again, you're focusing on the whole picture, not the mistakes. Focus on the mistakes, focus on the flaws, and that'll make something perfect. Okay. Uh, I'll bore the hell out of you with this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I'm good. But if you guys uh, got any cool questions, feel free to hit me up anytime. Uh, if you want to talk about natural stones, Arkansas stones, here to help. Yeah. Uh, love sharing knowledge with everybody as much as I possibly can. Want to give me your contact information for? Yeah. Prada, uh, you can get me at rh Prada. It's Nick N I C K at r h p r e y d a dot com. You can also get a hold of me at the Edge Professional uh, on Instagram and on uh, Facebook. Yeah, not TikTok. <laughs> we'll have to get him on TikTok. Uh, <laughs> uh, you can keep in touch with uh, me, Kyle Daly, with Cage Daily Knives at CageDailyKnives.com and Cage Daily Knives on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter and Facebook. Uh, and you can keep in touch with Dan Eastland of Dogwood Custom Knives at DogwoodCustomKnives.com. And hope you get feeling better, Dan, and hope that surgery goes well. Hopefully we're going to have a lot of a lot of recorded shows coming up uh, since Dan's going to be able to only just type with one hand and not uh, be out in the shop. So, uh, yeah, you can keep in touch with the podcast uh, on knifeperspective.com. Yeah, hoping to, hoping to have a lot more stuff kind of cross-promoted and uh, looking at some, some different build-along things and stuff for the, the coming new year, trying to plan it out. Thanks again for all of uh, our sponsors. Uh, you guys are great. And thank you, Nick, for coming out. Let me try some stones. Thanks for having me. Thanks, everyone, for listening. And if I can ever help, just let me know. Yeah. All right. Thanks, everybody. Bye, guys. Bye. Well, let's take it to the edge. Because that's what's expected. In this discussion, this is the night prospective. Let's get to the point. We're going to talk about.